All the way from Bokota Village in Limpopo, South Africa, we bring you Missionary Minds, where you can learn about family, church history, biblical worldview issues, and of course, missions, all from the mind of a real-world missionary of almost 20 years. But he says on the 24th of September, South Africa celebrates Heritage Day. It's a day where there are varying displays of expressions of culture, particularly in the form of clothing. Just yesterday, you were preaching to the parents of the children who attend Misere Classical School. You spoke of the heritage of the Tongas, the heritage of the Vendors, the heritage of the Shonas, and the heritage of the Americans. It was a summary of the heritage of all cultures before the light of God's word comes to them. I want to zoom in even more to the heritage you desire for your family. What three traits, values, or characteristics would you want your children to take on for their lives? Over to you, Mfundisi. Wow. Um, good question. I love lists. And my first thought is just list a string of adjectives. Wise, virtuous, holy, readers, evangelistic, Baptists. I love clear definitions and precision. So let me just give a string of adjectives and or illustrations to try to connect it together. Spiritually minded, or the fear of God, or faith in the unseen realm, or puritanic, or entirely committed, or sold out, or heavenly minded. I have recently been captivated with the idea of the Puritans. Maybe, maybe, maybe by recently, I mean several years now. I've been captivated by the idea of the Puritans because it seems to me like the Puritans represented a group of men and women who were so single-focused on God and His Word that they did not doubt His Word, that they measured and moved their entire lives according to His Word, and that they labored to produce and then propagate a culture entirely stemming and blossoming from religion. And these days, maybe people say, don't like to use the word religion in a positive sense. They'll say, I'm not religious. I have a relationship. The Puritans didn't feel that way. They would openly say, uh, they would openly speak of religion as a good thing. And then, of course, there'd be pure religion and false religion. And the book of James does that too, in the last verse of the first chapter pure religion. I say that because I want my children to be spiritually minded. Uh, right down here to my right is the book by John Owen on spiritual mindedness. He's one of the Puritans. Down here is a treatise on earthly mindedness by Jeremiah Burroughs. Amazingly, he wrote that whole book off of the words in Philippians 3.19, who mind earthly things. Mm. Can you imagine writing a book of nearly 200 pages on the phrase, who mind earthly things? I want to be that. I don't want my children to be that way. I, it is, in scholarly circles, popular to confine the Puritans to the 1500s and 1600s. I would rather say, well, if you do that, then you cut out Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. Okay, we won't cut them out. We'll allow it, we'll allow it to go into the 1700s. We'll allow it to go to America. Oh, well, fine. Then do you include... Um, Hodge, Charles Hodge, do you include uh, Bonar, do you include Robert Murray McShane in the 1800s, the Scots, uh, do you include Spurgeon, 
I, what captivates me are the lives of these men who are so wholly dedicated to the Lord, like Martin Lloyd-Jones in the 1900s, like Charles Spurgeon in the 1800s, like George Whitfield and William Carey in the 1700s, like um, John Bunyan and Richard Baxter in the 1600s, or Martin Luther and John Knox in the 1500s. I just want a life of men who are entirely spiritually minded. So, if this discussion is supposed to take 20 minutes, I just took a few minutes on the first one. <laughs> spiritually minded. Yeah. Can I keep going, or how do you want to guide the conversation? Now? Uh, uh, no, I want to I pause on that one. And my wife and I have been recently going through some biographies, uh, missionary biographies. We did David Livingston, and on our trip to Joburg and back, we uh, did uh, Through the Gates of Splendor. And it was an incredible blessing. And I think that's an adjective I would use to describe the men that we were learning of. They were spiritually minded. These were all men who were capable. They were amazing yeah. men. They could have done a plethora of different things, but they were so captivated right. by the realities of God's word. That's it. That it drove them to situations and places and ends in life which were to be despised by other normal men who weren't spiritually yes or, or can i can i give you a quote from a very unlikely source an unusual source edward hills a brilliant scholar in the vantillian tradition cornelius vantill a presbyterian wrote a lengthy book entitled the king james version defended and he's dead now but toward the end of that book he has a quote that is the biggest takeaway for me from that whole book and he says at the end of that book we need to read our bibles like believers and then he says what does it mean to actually be a believer i'm paraphrasing now and he said when we hold god as our highest reality so that all other realities are under him and judged by him and dominated and ruled by him then we have finally become believers that has shaken me and controlled me for 20 years since i read that i was forced to read it in 96 or 97 in, in bible college in a baptist bible college reading up presbyterian and that that shook me that quote that's what I want for my kids. That's what I see in Martin Lloyd-Jones. And, and, okay, let me just make a 2,000-year leap. That's what I see in the Apostle Paul. In his prayers in Ephesians 1, in his prayers in Colossians 1, Philippians 1, when Paul prays, he prays for these kinds of deep spiritual things, and I don't see that in many churches. I want that in my heart. I want that in my soul, and I want that, if nothing else, I think I could say that's the one thing I want in my kids. And I think it's summarized with Solomon in the Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Mm. I want my children to have the fear of God with its spiritual-minded, spiritual-minded heart. Mm. So, we're thinking of the generations of Myers that will flow from Seth Myers. And the first thing they'll be is spiritually-minded we pray and hope. What is the second thing you want for your children? Hmm. I want them 
I want them to be. Okay, let me pick something practical. Hardworking. I want my children to be hardworking. Um, the Proverbs are filled with it. History is filled with it. Our Lord was the consummate worker. Just yesterday, preparing to preach that sermon in at Misebe, I searched through our Lord's words for work, how commonly it was said that he worked. It's very interesting because from the beginning of his life, it says he worked and was constantly working. And it's summarized maybe best in John 9, verse 4. And he says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night comes when no one can work. And then at the end of, the life, of his life, the night before he died, he said, I finished the work. I measured up my time, I planned it, and I did it. I want my children to be like our Savior that way. I want them to be hard workers, dedicated. I don't want them to be whiners. No one else is doing it. I just want them to work with their eye on their master. Every worker must answer to his own master, Romans 14. I want them to just uh, be constantly working. It was said of George Whitfield that he was always looking for some good endeavor. I want them to be hard workers. Hmm. That's a that's a good one. And I feel like you were very smart with your first option because you picked spiritually minded, which can be quite broad, and we can throw a lot in that bucket. Um and it's interesting that you choose hard working for the second one because there's that uh saying which says the person who is so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good mm. but someone who is first spiritually minded and hard working they're always doing uh, numerous yeah. things uh that are hopefully profitable and i think of once again just the the it's so fresh in my mind cuz we're uh, just driving back from johannesburg and listening to the book um that when uh, one of the men who were part of the the Alka Five landed when they were trying to reach the Alkas, and they said they were looking for one of the other men, and the way he described that man is in a way that he was surprised that he never saw him around, because if there was something that needed doing, then he was going to be doing it because he was never someone who left something undone that needed doing. Yes, yes, and yes. I was, I was like, wow, that's what a description of someone. But mm. I'm, I'm, I'll make another comment on hardworking. I think that's, that's a skill. It might also be an art. Because there's a difference between an art and a skill. An art has the element of judgment and beauty. A skill, not so much. You might be skillful with a drill. But artistic elements uh, uh, um, mentions not only skill, but there's that element of judgment. You know, just how to judge the nuance of your paint, a painting, or of your sculpting. Um, but I think hard work is a very difficult skill. And my wife and I have talked about this a lot. I think manliness, if we had to sum it up, I think maybe the best way to sum it up with one word would be hard work. Men have, to, men have to be hard workers. You can say lead, you can say guide, you can say love. Um, th that's all true. But in what way do they lead? Well, they've got to provide. They've got to provide. 
So I want them to be masterful in their working. I want them to know how to work, how to work well, not merely um, to sweat a lot, but to know when this is the time for sweat, this is the time for pausing and meditation. It's time for meditation so that you can put your sweat to the best work. But when sweat's called for, I don't want my kids to be uh, pusillanimous about it. I want them to be zealous, uh, quick, um, ready to dive in. So I want them to learn that skill. And I guess I'm going to have to, I'm gonna have to be skillful myself in work, knowing, knowing when to meditate and knowing when to sweat and knowing how to work by myself without being bothered. That no one else is working. They're all sitting down. Let me just work quietly and not worry about them. Mm-hmm. I don't want to oversimplify the lofty truths of leading, providing, protecting, but you can't do any of those things well unless you're a hard worker. Yes. My wife recently, and she's a wise woman, she's a smart woman, she's a resourceful woman, so I know she could very easily go and look and find answers on her own and wiser answers than I uh, can give. But she's also a biblical woman, so she wants to live out when Paul says, um, husband, wives should go home and ask their husbands when they want to understand some truth of the word. And so she has a study Bible, and she was doing her devotions. She could have glanced down and just looked at the meaning of what was in what she was going to. But she came to you. She came to me and she was like, honey, I don't understand what this says in God's word. And that forces you. Yeah. Yeah. She was like, please teach me. Um, And it's not like she wanted it on the spot. She knew I had to go do research. I don't know everything. And so I had to go and I had to actually do work to learn how to find that. And so to actually lead her, I have to apply myself. Um, And therein lies the need to work hard. Excellent. Excellent. Mm. So we've spoken about spiritual mindedness. We've spoken about hard work. What's the third thing that we want the Myers generation? If you ask me this, this comes to my mind immediately. Humility. Mm. Um, I say that because I'm captivated with that virtue. I don't say that because I've mastered it. I say it because I see how glorious it is. I see it in our Lord washing feet. I see it in our Lord becoming visible. Just the act that he was born. Mm. That, that is overwhelming humility. My wife and I are reading John Milton's Paradise Lost, which is an amazing book. I can't believe I've lived 45 years and never read it. I feel ashamed mm. that there is this treasure in English that I never read until I'm 45. And I'm now in, we're going to hopefully finish book 11 tonight. There's 12 books or 12 chapters, whatever you call it. And it's all in poem, but it doesn't rhyme. It is amazing. To the, the lofty spiritual thoughts he puts in that book, the way he blends hundreds of scriptures. I don't think that's an exaggeration. Although I bought my own copy because she's reading to me on a Kindle, which I really dislike reading on, but I'm enduring a Kindle so that I can read it with my wife. But I went and got my own copy, a paper copy, so I'm going to read it a second time and make notes in it. But I'm finding over and over the book is 
It's saturated with Bible. It pulls Bible from all over. But because he's such a good poet, and this is how I know he's a good poet, he exalts my mind into unseen things and makes those unseen things seem more alive and more colorful than the things I can see with my eyes. It's happened constantly. He paints in the chapter one or book one, he paints Satan with all of the devils cast down from heaven. And the way he paints that makes me despise them and hate sin. And then in chapter three, he paints the council of redemption in such beautiful terms that I just want to preach a whole sermon series on the council of redemption. And I even, as I prepared a sermon series on it, I thought, oh no, how can I ever bring this across to the song of people? All that to say, he paints the incarnation in a way that makes me see the beauty of its humility. Mm. So get back to the point. John Milton's Paradise Lost has made me see humility. And then when, when Adam and Eve eat the fruit, they're the humility the whole way through. And then when they finally repent, their repentance is so full that I found myself overwhelmed. I've, I've preached now a sermon series with 22 sermons on humility. I started a manuscript. Maybe someday I'll finish it. I just want, and, and the reason I'm trying to write a manuscript on it is I don't know of a Puritan work on the doctrine of humility. I, I want to promote that doctrine in my life. I want it in my children. It seems to me like it's the foundation of all doctrines, uh, uh, virtues, even more fundamental than, than love. Uh, love, I don't think, can exist without humility. I, I just, I want that. I see it. It is so glorious. I want my kids to have that. And I see, I see humility as being a greater safeguard to the practice of perseverance, even than love. I see love as being more open to temptation and to falling by attacks from the evil one than humility, as if humility is a more powerful warrior or a wall that is too high or a foundation that's too rock solid so that if my children really built their lives on humility, they would make it to the end and be saved. And, and I've seen over and over how God's used humility. If, if I could be humble, it, it, will, it will keep me from falling. So that's, those are some virtues. We can go on if you want to I, I want to actually talk on that one uh, for my sake and for the sake of the audience. Uh, like you did with the first one, let's throw up a couple of either adjectives or illustrations that demonstrate the the trait of humility. Well, I preached 22 sermons on it, so my definition was low before God. Humility is being low before God. It's not merely being low, and it's not merely being in front of God, because Satan came in front of God and had a kind of lowness, but he really was not low. In his heart, he despised being there. Um, it's got to be low before God. So other, uh, other adjectives would be, would be um, uh, this is an adjective phrase. <laughs> Can that count? Participial, participial <laughs> phrase acting as an adjective. Knowing that you are a sinful creature, that's another phrase from the study. Knowing that you are both a creature and knowing that you are a sinner. And I saw that over and over in Paradise Lost. At first, they were humble in books one to eight. Well, they were created in book five. Books five, six, seven, and eight, they were humble because they knew they were creatures. Then in book nine and 10 and 11, now they know they're sinful creatures and there was humility at both places. 
So knowing your sinful creatures, being low before God, um, David, oh, the metaphors of Scripture. David calls himself a dead dog, a flea. Abigail calls herself a slave, a maidservant to wash the feet, not of David her Lord, but of her Lord's slaves. Abigail, the richest woman in the area, says, I'm just a slave to wash the feet of my Lord's slaves. And so many more metaphors like that, like you are dead in your trespasses and sins, child of Satan, O wretched man that I am, the chief of sinners. What a treat from Fundisi. To our audience, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to rate it and subscribe to keep posted with more upcoming content. Feel free to share this episode with someone who might find it interesting and submit any questions you may want answered in a future podcast. You can email those questions to paulslayline at gmail.com. You can also visit betweentwocultures.com for other resources like this. I'm your host, Yamikani Katunga, and until next time, that's it from Missionary Minds.